The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, just before we get started, I want to give a big, big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters who joined us last week for our monthly Zoom calls that we're, we're holding. Great turnout and lots of great questions. We were talking a lot about Wang Yi's tour, and then these trade numbers that we're going to talk about today also came up, and it was fun just to see people uh, all over the world so interested in the issue of China's engagement in the Global South. And again, I want to thank all the folks in the U.S. who got up so early to join us as well. That's always very humbling. So huge thank you to everybody in the Patreon crowd. If you would like to become a Patreon supporter, we would be very grateful for it, of course. You can join us on these monthly Zoom calls for these debriefings, and also you can get the Week in Review digest that we put out every Friday, and we've got some swag for certain people. It's really just a great, fun community of scholars and even a couple journalists are part of it and also just interested interesting people from all over the world. So go to patreon.com slash China Africa Project. Okay, today, Kobus, it is trade day. Wow. A lot of data came out today from the General Administration of Customs in China. We got a hint that something was going to be coming early on, and it usually comes this time of year. We get these big data dumps of trade for the previous year, and they did not disappoint this year. So total global Chinese trade came in at $6.05 trillion, the first time that it has ever crossed the $6 trillion mark. I was actually looking to find out if any country has ever crossed $6 trillion in annual trade. And I couldn't find an answer to that. I think the only country that would have done that at some point in their history would have been the United States. Uh, but if anybody knows the answer to that, uh, it's a little factoid that I was looking for. But China did cross that that mark in 2021. Then later this week, in the on let's see, it was Wednesday, we got the details on a country level and on a regional level. So I'm going to read through a whole bunch of stats now. So bear with me. It's super interesting. We're going to do a deep dive on some of it with our guest today. And Kobus, I want to get your take on it. So let's talk about Africa in particular. $254 billion is the number in two-way trade. That is an all-time record. The last time that they crossed the $200 billion mark was back in 2015. And it has been inching up ever slightly since then. Uh, 2020 was $187 billion, so a big jump from $187 billion to $254. Let's look at the five largest trading partners overall. And Kobus, I don't think this is going to surprise you. South Africa came in first at $54 billion in two-way trade. Nigeria, $26 billion in two-way trade. Angola, $23 billion, most of that, of course, being oil. Egypt, $19 billion, and the DR Congo at $14 billion. The five largest export markets for Chinese goods in Africa. At the top, 
Nigeria, $23 billion. Not surprising given the fact that Nigeria is the largest economy in Africa, but also a lot of infrastructure work was going on there in 2021 with the Lagos to Ibadan Railway. That requires a lot of heavy equipment that can boost up the trade numbers. South Africa, $21 billion. Egypt, $18 billion. This is the where China sells its stuff to. Ghana, $8 billion. And Kenya, $7 billion. Africa's largest exporters to China. So selling from Africa to China. Uh, South Africa, again, topping the list, $33 billion. Now, the South Africa number is a little bit tricky here. And Kobus, you might be able to enlighten us a little bit more on this. Not all of the stuff passing through the ports in South Africa, particularly the port of Durban, is South African products. A lot of it is coming from other regions throughout the Southern Africa zone. Uh, say the, co- the cobalt from the DRC makes its way to South Africa. It then sometimes gets registered as a South African export. Again, exporters to China. Angola coming in two, number two with $21 billion. The DRC coming in third with $12 billion. Republic of Congo, $5 billion. And Zambia, $4 billion. Those are all resource-rich countries. One other key point to look at in this numbers is that typically over the past, say, five or six years, the trade between China and Africa has been roughly even at about 80 to 90 billion each, 100 billion each. One of the kind of the hallmarks of this latest data report was that Chinese exports to Africa went up quite a bit. And so it was about $154 billion dollars. Uh, yeah, about $150 billion in exports and $100 billion in imports. And that really is troubling in one sense because it's exacerbating some of the trade deficits that are haunting a lot of African countries. And, and their ability to narrow that trade deficit is one of the big challenges facing uh, China-Africa relations today. Okay, Kobus, let me stop there. Lots of data, hard to follow. We have all of the breakdown on our website The report is public by the General Administration of Customs, so you can go and check it out. It is not available yet in English. It's only available in Chinese. But if you use Google Translate, you can actually understand it all very, very quickly. What was your reaction? What's your takeaway, Kobus? Two related things. In the first place, you know, I was surprised that they managed to to hit the record um, despite all of the disruptions in in shipping and shipping containers and and so there's been so it was such a disrupted year in terms of of supply chains that it surprised me that they managed to actually like do so much trade. In the second place, it still is staggering that despite the fact that it is this much this much trade, it still makes up so little of China's full global trade. I think, you know, kind of we, we pointed out today, it's a little bit more than 4% of China's uh, China's entire global trade, you know, and it's dwarfed by by um, Latin American trade, for example. So the, so the combination of those two is really interesting. The third thing that struck me just on a global level is the, even though, you know, as, as you mentioned, that trade with the U.S. as, as kind of as, as inched upwards, also despite, despite all of these pressures, but China's trade with Asia and with Europe is still so much bigger than its trade with North America. So that, that, that's also a really interesting data point for me. Let me just run down the, the regional partners, and this will give you a good sense of where Africa fits in that picture. So as Kobus mentioned, Africa accounts for 4.2% of the $6.05 trillion in total global trade. So a relatively small portion, uh, a very small portion, in fact, a rounding error uh, for an economy as large as China. Half of China's trade is done in Asia, right here. 
And when they say Asia, that's all of Asia, including Japan, Korea, the, the big industrial economies, as well as Southeast Asia, ASEAN. With ASEAN, it's about $878 billion. It, but it doesn't include the Gulf region, right? So we're not talking about Western Asia. Like, it's 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 South Asia to towards East Asia. Yeah, I, I wonder where they have that demarcation line. They didn't specify that in the report. They just put Asia. So it would be interesting to talk to somebody who knows where do they, they cut the line. And whether Central Asia factors into that, but that is something that wasn't called out. Uh, again, let me just now read you guys the, where Africa fits. Asia came in at 3.06 trillion, so about half of China's total global trade is here in Asia. Europe at 1.1 trillion dollars. Now that is Europe, including the European Union. So with just the European Union, it's 828 billion, but kind of broader, greater Europe is 1.178 trillion. North America, which is Canada, the US, and I don't know if they include Mexico in that, 837 billion. Latin America and the Caribbean, very interesting, 451 billion, up 150 billion over last year. So up 33% increase in Latin America and the Caribbean. That is something really interesting to watch. Oceania, which had been behind Africa for many years. That's those... That's the South Pacific area. They are up at 266 billion, and Africa came in at 254. The Persian Gulf is 236 billion, and Australia as a continent and as a country came in eighth at 231 billion. So those are the, the top eight regional partners. Very interesting again to see where Africa fits on that. Let's get some perspective now on the trade issues and the broader current state of China-Africa relations. We're going to do something of like a lightning round we've done in the past where we're going to cover a lot of different topics because we've got a guest who can actually handle the whole breadth of issues that are out there. Paul Nantulia, if you are followers of our show, you'll know exactly who he is. He's a research associate at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies in Washington, D.C. He writes extensively on security, but he also writes on all sorts of different issues. And he has been so kind to get up very early in the morning to join us from Chile, Washington, D.C. A very good morning to you, Paul. Good morning. Good morning, Eric. Very nice to be on the show. Good morning, Kobus. Uh, this is a excellent uh, opportunity for us to discuss China-Africa relations. Well, there's a lot going on, as, as you've heard, in the security realm, in the geopolitical realm with Wang Yi's tour, and now in trade. Now, I know you've just started your day in Washington. You haven't had a chance to go through all of the trade numbers, but based on the the overview that I just provided, what's your immediate reaction to the state of current state of China-Africa trade? Well, two reactions, really. Uh, the first, as Kobus had uh, pointed out, is uh, last year was a COVID. It was a COVID year, and most of the analysis out there, most of the narratives were kind of trending downward. You know, there was an expectation that uh, trade a two-way trade between China and uh, and its African partners would uh, decrease, would shrink. But that is not the case at all. Uh, there was a lot of two-way trade. This is a, it's a record. It's a, you know, one would not expect, you know, such such high numbers in, in a COVID year. So I think that's the first key takeaway for me. The second takeaway is that the countries that you mentioned, Nigeria, Angola, the DRC, and South Africa, these happen to be countries that also have the largest concentration of Chinese nationals and Chinese workers on the continent. 
So it's quite interesting because if we drill down and try and get a granular picture, we do find that in those countries, clusters of Chinese communities are playing a very important role in terms of building that bottom-up pressure to deepen trade links. And some of them, like for instance in South Africa, are also asserting themselves politically. That's the other key takeaway for me. I wonder if there is uh, some kind of connection. Of course, these are all big economies. These are countries that all have strategic partnership relations with, with, with China, which is the other uh, dimension. Of course, all of them are also very important security partners. So I see a pattern here, which is very interesting for me. But certainly, uh, these are countries that have very big concentrations of Chinese nationals and Chinese workers. So that's the other dimension for me. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting point. There also happen to be, well, three of these countries, Nigeria, South Africa, and, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, also happen to have seen a lot of security issues around Chinese nationals living in those countries. We've seen, you know, kind of many kidnappings and, you know, kind of robberies and so on, like like hitting the headlines over the last few months in those three countries particularly. You know, how, how do you think that kind of like security issue overlaps with the role that these communities play in facilitating trade? Like, like is it a situation where the countries where there's a lot of trade action just happen to be countries that also face these security issues? Or is it a situation where like deep engagement with Africa kind of brings those problems with it. Yeah, I think these are problems that, that inevitably come up when, you know, the expansion of uh, China's economic and financial footprint. And if we look at the Chinese Academy of uh, Social Sciences, every year they produce what they call a global risk assessment for Chinese state-owned enterprises. And it's very interesting. The last couple of years, uh, they have cited very high figures, uh, upwards of 80% of China's high-value Belt and Road uh, investments uh, are in unstable and what they call high-risk countries, right? There is an overlap, right, between uh, increased engagement and increased security threats. So if one looks at the conversations, right, that are taking place in Beijing, in these various institutions that deal with security issues, you know, there's that understanding, right, that these security issues uh, will continue to create problems for China, and they're going to require some kind of response. So that's the first thing that I would say. The second thing that I would say is in terms of the responses, right? So there's a lot of pressure, you know, these state-owned enterprises, right? These executives of state-owned enterprises, these are the engines of Chinese foreign policy. They have a lot of influence, right, in the decision-making structures in the Communist Party. I mean, these are these are these are members of uh, the Communist Party as well, right? So they're applying pressure for China to adopt a more muscular presence and a more muscular approach on the continent. And of course, that then brings a lot of attention to the People's Liberation Army. But at the same time, you have this aversion. You have this aversion to maintaining a large military footprint on the continent. And this is something that you see, you know, sort of China has to balance between a very ambitious and very expansive foreign policy direction and uh, a disinclination right, to deploying uh, the PLA in very large numbers. So when you look at that aversion and you look at the pressure that is coming up, we're starting to see China trying to establish what I call a blended security approach, which is a combination of strengthened political ties, building capacity for local partners to respond to Chinese interests and to respond to Chinese security concerns, and very interestingly, law enforcement, right? So in some of those countries, for instance, 
in Nigeria a couple of weeks ago, we saw China dispatch a high-level police team to Nigeria to address specifically uh, security issues uh, that are affecting uh, Chinese nationals as a result of this upsurge in attacks against uh, Chinese uh, companies. So the use of the police, use of law enforcement, at least 17 African countries now have extradition agreements with the People's Republic of China. So we're starting to see increasing law enforcement, police engagement. I mean, there was another story that you guys broke this week of uh, Chinese police commandos in a joint operation with Ugandan commandos on Ugandan soil. And this is not the first time that kind of thing is happening. So again, very interesting uh, overlap, security issues and China's expanding uh, economic interests on the continent. I think this is something that we're going to see much more of in the years ahead. Well, let's focus on security now, since you've raised a lot of these issues. Let me just give people a little bit of background before we dive into it. The meeting that you were talking about in Nigeria that took place in late December, and then there was a subsequent meeting that happened a week later, involved a delegation from China's powerful public security ministry that flew from China to Nigeria. As far as I know from covering this story for as long as we have, I've never seen this before. And it does represent an escalation of Chinese concerns about the welfare and security of their people. They met with Director General of the State Security Services in Abuja, and they also met with the Chinese business community as well. Kidnappings have been a big problem. Also, piracy in the Gulf of Guinea has also been a big problem. So those are two issues that Nigerians have been confronting. In Uganda, that story that that you referenced, very interesting. That too had been the first time that I had heard of armed Chinese commandos and really a large team of armed Chinese commandos, based on the reports that we were seeing, were present in the country. They apparently received the blessing of President Yoweri Museveni to be in the country, and they were hunting down eight Chinese wanted criminals who, by the way, also had Interpol red notices against them. Now, these Interpol red notices from the Chinese are quite controversial because they have been using them against Uyghur activists as well. And in Morocco last year, the Chinese issued a red notice against a Uyghur activist who was transiting through the country. And then later, Interpol withdrew the red notice and said this wasn't actually subject to a red notice. So these red notices are very interesting. In Uganda in particular, I was surprised by your reaction because you said this happens a lot more than we know. Can you tell us a little bit more about this law enforcement engagement that happens clearly out of sight of public view? You mentioned that this might be the People's Armed Police that might be involved in some of these coordinated raids and these commando operations. Can we spend a little time about what happened in Uganda based on your experience? Yes. So this was uh, these were units from the People's Armed Police, special police units, right? So these are basically special forces of the People's Armed Police. And I think it's worth the audience uh, needs to understand about the PAP is that it is part of the PLA. So under the new guidelines in China, the new military guidelines, I think uh, this occurred in 2019, the People's Armed Police were placed under the control of the Central Military Commission. So is that because they moved from the PSB, from the Public Security Bureau to the PLA? Or where did they, where were they before they were part of the PLA? So before that, there was there was shared control between the Central Military Commission 
and the Ministry of Public Security. So it was a shared it was a shared function. But now they've been moved completely under the Central Military Commission. However, when they operate overseas, right, so they need to have the express approval of the Central Military Commission. But functionally, they would fall under the Ministry of Public Security. So whenever you see, um, you know, meetings between the between between the MPS and different African countries, right, concerning uh, police issues, they will take the lead. And of course, the embassies will then manage the day-to-day engagements. And that's what we saw in Uganda. So what I would argue is that the law enforcement, police and public security engagements of the Chinese and its African partners even overshadow uh, the People's Liberation Army in terms of scale, in terms of scope and in terms of frequency. I mean, Eric, if you do a search, if you get the time, do a Google search of meetings between Chinese ambassador and police chiefs, right? And you can just pick any African country uh, that you think of. It will half the time, you know, more than half the time, you will get a result. Chinese ambassadors are increasingly having more engagements with police chiefs. You know, Mauritius, Ghana, Egypt, Algeria, Uganda, Kenya, you know, pick any country. It's becoming critically important. What is also very interesting is that the idea of protecting Chinese nationals, Chinese interest, has now become a security governance norm. This is a talking point that you will find on any given story where you have a Chinese ambassador or a Chinese representative Uh, meeting a police chief in an African country. Lesotho has a multi-stakeholder security initiative that brings together all Lesotho's public security agencies together with representatives of Chinese companies and the Chinese embassy. This is as old as you get. I mean, since 2010, 2010, 2011, 2012, you have had this this, uh, interaction Uh, taking place. So again, it's not new. It is uh, just not in the media, surprisingly, but law enforcement, public security, these are very, very important areas for China and its African partners. Well, let's stay in the security realm before we move on a little bit more. Here are a few other headlines. By the way, just on that Uganda story, they only arrested four of the eight They suspect that the other four crossed over into the border, either into the Democratic Republic of Congo or into South Sudan, and they are now gone. So they haven't been able to find them. But a very big and interesting operation and uh, something that we'll keep an eye on going forward. Also, uh, again, staying with security, three Chinese warships left Guangdong province uh, last week. They are now making their way to the Gulf of Aden to participate in multinational anti-piracy operations. Now, this is an operation that's been going on for 14 years now and involves U.S., European, African, a whole bunch of different forces that are there. The key question is how long are they going to stay simply because Somalia has only renewed the mandate at the United Nations for three months starting back in December. So ships are going from the Chinese PLA Navy. How long they're going to stay is something that we'll be keeping an eye on as well. Let's go back down to the Democratic Republic of Congo couple stories that we covered this week in the security realm. Uh, there was incidentally a break-in at the Chinese UN peacekeeping base in Bukavu. They arrested two robbers who had crossed over the fence. But it highlights the growing problem of security in the eastern DRC for Chinese people and property. There have been a spate of break-ins in Kalesi, in the, in the, in the cobalt mining zone, but also in South Kivu, North Kivu, and Ituri provinces. That's been where the kidnappings are taking place. The Chinese embassy back in December gave an ultimatum to its people that they got to get out by December 10th or else they're on their own. 
Not everybody left because we had reports of more kidnappings in late December as well. So, Paul, about the situation in the DRC, it does present a problem for the Chinese because the mining activities that are going on there are very different than the big, massive state-owned enterprise cobalt and copper operations in the southeastern in Lualaba province. In eastern DRC, it's these independent miners, and they're, they're kind of rogue in, in some respects. What do you think the Chinese are going to do about that, given that the kidnappings and the break-ins uh, seems to be showing no signs of slowing? Again, I think it, it just speaks to the, uh, to the scope and scale of Chinese activities, or, or rather ch- activities by Chinese stakeholders on the continent, right? Uh, in places like the Democratic Republic of Congo, in, 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 in the rural areas, in any African country, you know, you're going to find this uh, presence, right, of, uh, of Chinese uh, communities. And I think it's important to note that not all of them are there at the behest of the Chinese state. Quite a few aren't, by the way. I mean, it's a lot of independent miners that are small scale. Uh, a, a lot, lot of, of independent miners, miners and all that. Yes, yeah. so, absolutely, absolutely. So I think again, this is going to trigger a response from the from the government simply because, you know, there's this narrative, you know, sort of like the way Chinese are portrayed on the continent. In in, in other words, anytime anything like that happens, people immediately talk about the Chinese government and what the Chinese government is going to do. So I think in that particular case, you're going to see more closer engagement. Right between the, between the MPS and not not necessarily the central government in Kinshasa, but the provincial government. One of the trends that we're that we're seeing on the continent uh, and in other places as well in South Asia as well is that the MPS is not just engaging central authorities; it's also engaging provincial authorities. In some cases, it's all, it's engaging municipalities, right, right down to the municipal level. That's how granular it is. So I think you're going to see more of that. You're going to see a greater role for security contractors. And I think in the security contractor space, it's also important to note that not all of these are Chinese security contractors. In fact, Chinese state-owned companies are also hiring Western security contractors, right? There's an impression that, you know, that the only strictly hire Chinese are contractors, but, but, but that is that is definitely not the case. Then you also have uh, local uh, security providers, right? So you're going to see a greater effort, right, to work with uh, local security contractors as well who are registered with the authorities in the Democratic Republic of Congo. These are sort of the patterns that we see on the continent because, as I said, it's such a huge footprint, it is impossible to provide comprehensive security. I think the Chinese, I mean, there are interviews, right, where Chinese ambassadors have said, we just don't have the staff, we just don't have the capacity to see to it that security is provided for everybody. So it's going to continue to be a work in progress. But I would say that the focus should not just only be at the central government level, but should also be at the municipal level. So you're, again, you're going to see a blend. You're going to see a blend of security measures to try and provide as much cover as you can. Very, very difficult set of circumstances uh, for, for the Chinese government. Paul, you're, you're based in, in Washington, D.C. And, and uh, you know, in, as part of your work, you, you have a lot of conversations with, with people in, in the defense sector with, you know, in, in the U.S. We've seen over the last while that there's, that there's been a lot of, uh, you know, kind of... 
pronouncements, frequently quite vague pronouncements coming, you know, coming out of very senior people in, in the U.S. establishment, security establishment, about a possible base on a Chinese base on the Atlantic um, in Africa. I was wondering what you make of that narrative, and why do you think this? Because you know, kind of usually when 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 it comes out, we always cover these things. We always see then many China Africa experts saying they don't think it's really such a big priority for China to have an Atlantic base. Yet the story keeps coming. You know, you, you you keep seeing that talking point coming up. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, that the base issue itself, and then also the conversations that you're seeing with, with security people in DC, how they overlap with the realities of China-Africa security issues that you're also studying. Chinese security activity is always going to generate tremendous media interest and a tremendous policy interest uh, around the world because I think the expanded or the extended nature of Chinese foreign policy internationally is one of the big ticket issues in international relations, right? The emergence of China is one of those issues that really takes all the oxygen out of the room. In terms of uh, in terms of uh, basing, I think I would I'll take a step back and really look at it from a much broader perspective. And I think I would say three things. The first is to extend a basing footprint. Uh, certainly, if we look at the example of Djibouti, where the Chinese People's Liberation Army, so far its only foreign military facility that we know. It was based on a number of things. One was the strength of ties, the sheer strength and depth of political and in particular party to party ties. Right. So this was a major a major issue. And if we just if we look at the strength of party to party ties that the People's Republic of China has with different African countries, then my guess is that China has such a wide menu of options to choose from if it is to establish a second base on the African continent. So it doesn't matter if it's on the Atlantic coast or the Indian Ocean coast. China has the political and social capital it needs to expand its basing uh, options uh, if it needs to. So that's the first thing that I would say. The second thing that I would say is that you do have other criteria, one of which is where the host country lies in terms of China's partnership rankings. So China has this system of ranking partners, right? I think there are five levels. So if we look at that and sort of plot African countries on that map, we can then get a fairly reasonable idea about where China would be most interested uh, in establishing a military facility or a larger um, military presence. And so far, you have 21 African countries that fit that criteria. The other criteria is location, which, of course, all that is bound up in the uh, expansion of the Belt and Road and so forth. And, you know, you see countries like Kenya, countries like Tanzania uh, coming up. The presence of, you know, significant port developments, um, whether it's a Chinese-built port or whether it's a port where Chinese companies have got stakes uh, involved, or whether Chinese companies are simply operating but are not fu- but are not financing, and there are quite a number of those spread around uh, the African continent. But I think the last thing that I would say as well, in terms of criteria of basing partners, is their level of clout in the African Union and at the United Nations, and the role that they play in international uh, multilateral uh, security missions. 
Because if you look at Djibouti, Djibouti gave a perfect location in terms of it already had many foreign bases, right? So that immediately makes it difficult politically for any of those countries to then take issue with the Chinese. And that was definitely a political calculation. Secondly, the manner in which the base was established was, you know, sort of the talking point was the base is being established to support contributions to multilateral operations, peacekeeping and counter-piracy and so forth. So that also gives a China political cover. So the basing part, you know, basing partners would, would have to meet a, a number of criteria. But this international sort of dimension is extremely, is extremely important because it's important to note that the PLA deployments tend to be done within the framework of a multilateral mandate whether it's peacekeeping or humanitarian response or counter-piracy, rarely, if ever, do you get a PLA units being deployed outside of an international mandate. The only other time you find that is when you have like military exercises, of which uh, quite a number uh, have already taken place with uh, different African countries like Tanzania. So I think these are the four criteria. I would basically take a step back and look at the larger criteria uh, that would give us some indication as to where China would be interested in establishing a new basing facility or expanding the basing that it already has uh, on the African continent. Well, we should just be very clear here that the only people talking about a Chinese base in the Atlantic right now and all last year is the Pentagon. And we've looked through the Chinese scholarship, think tanks, reports, the foreign ministry saying there is a lot of talk about adding more Chinese bases in the Indian Ocean and to protect oil lanes and to try and confront the United States in the South China Sea, all of those places. There's a lot of talk. There is nothing in the rec- in the past two or three years on the Atlantic. Tuvia Gehring at the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security, he found a reference back in 2018. So the last reference was four years ago to an Atlantic base. So I think it's just really important that this is, at this point right now, the public record and the evidence of any discussion of this is solely within the five walls of the Pentagon right now and not happening outside of Washington. I tend to think my personal opinion is that this is about uh, Washington politics more than it is about Chinese military activity and that AFRICOM, who was on the chopping block not that long ago, I think it was, what, 12 or 18 months ago in the Trump administration, they wanted to cut large parts of the AFRICOM budget. How do you get funded in Washington in 2022? You put the word China on top of any proposal and bam, it gets funded. So that's where that's kind of where I'm thinking the base issue is right now. Love to hear if anybody has any other information that contradicts that. Kobus, last question to you. Paul, one one of the biggest kind of things on the political landscape this this year is the the upcoming big party conference where everyone is expecting that that Xi Jinping will formally enter his third term. Um, do you have any any kind of like glimpses of what the what how Africa will play? in the Chinese kind of political landscape more generally in this coming year and you know kind of and what the this kind of continued term like continued kind of like presidency of Xi Jinping will mean for the for the Africa China relationship cons- considering that you know he his his entrance um, when when he came to power it essentially 
changed a lot, like and supercharged a lot, a lot of the kind of mechanisms of of China African engagement, not least because of the BRI. You know, kind of what 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 do you, what are some of your kind of predictions for a third Xi Jinping term? First of all, I expect him to go for a third term. I expect him to do that, and I think this will continue the upward trajectory of, of China Africa relations because I think China Africa relations have reached new highs under Xi Jinping in many ways, not least、uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, which is very tied up to Xi Jinping's. Legacy. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that you know the Belt and Road has increasingly now become essentially part of the foreign policy machinery, right? So it has been heavily institutionalized. It's been heavily socialized within the party,、uh, within government, and within the state-owned、uh, enterprise sector. So I think you're going to see that continue, and I think African countries would have an interest in that. Thirdly, I think it's going to give you a sense of stability and predictability, right? Because I think African countries have developed their own relationships, not just with Xi Jinping, but also with、uh, key people in his circle, like Li Keqiang, right? Li Keqiang, the、uh, the premier, and、uh, there are people within that、uh, Politburo Standing Committee, right? The Committee of Six, sort of like the top six,、uh, China's top six. And there's a gentleman there by the name of Wang Huning,、uh, very very influential. He has sort of like he's an old Africa hand. Uh, and I think African countries are going to be looking at who is going to be in that,、uh, who's going to be in the top six, and will have, will Wang Huning remain in the top six? It's about networks. It's about you know, of course, within the Communist Party of China, you've got different factions as well. So these are sort of the issues that African countries are going to be looking at. Certainly, though, countries like South Africa, which tend to have more sophisticated policy mechanisms with the People's Republic. Are going to be looking at that Congress very, very carefully, and I think it's also important to note that in many of these Congresses, right, parties like the ANC, Frelimo, are invited、uh, for the opening of these conferences. So you're going to see, and likewise, the Communist Party of China also attends、uh, the Congresses of, of its、uh, partners on the continent, right? And they sometimes they deliver statements and that sort of thing. So I think again, you're going to see those party-to-party interactions. Those, you know, you're going to see that networking take place. So I would say let's look very very carefully at the top six. Let's see who remains in that top six. If there'll be any newcomers on the top six,、uh, this is going to be very very important to African countries. And then also, after these major party meetings, you have what they call the briefing delegations. This is a new instrument that came under Xi Jinping, where after every major party conclave, you have senior party members that are dispatched internationally. To a select group of parties to brief them at the highest level of the outcomes of these engagements, even before they hit the media, and so you find that the usual suspects—South Africa, Zimbabwe, Zambia—you know these countries, many of them liberation movements—that have always been given that quote-unquote honor of receiving these briefing delegations. So we're going to see. A lot of activity and a lot of networking in the run-up to that to that Congress,、uh, because African countries are really going to be looking at that very closely. You know, trying to get as much as they can out of this relationship, particularly on the issue of infrastructure, financing, and、uh, and other and other benefits. So again, you're going to see those exchanges uh, increase uh, in the run-up to this. It's interesting because it's going to be a very big political year in China with the Party Congress coming up, and also, of course, a very big political year in many African countries. As well, with changes of leadership that are coming in Kenya, elections are underway, or at least campaigns will be underway 
in Nigeria as well as in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So many of those countries in the top five of China's largest trading partners in Africa will have political transitions as well. So going to be a very interesting year for us to follow the politics there. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to help open our eyes to all of these different issues that you're closely following there in Washington. Paul Nantulia is a research associate at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies, one of the smartest guys in the business. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing on the Twitter, where can they find you? I have a Twitter account. I, I believe it's at, at P. Nantulia and also at Africa ACSS, Africa ACSS. There's a lot of uh, activity uh, on those on those two uh, Twitter handles. I will put a link to that. And also, you have some fans on Twitter, and one of your fans on Twitter posted a wonderful Twitter thread of all of your recent oh, writing, yes. and it was really just an impressive body of work. I'm going to link to that in the show notes as well, because you may be a very modest and humble individual, but we are going to celebrate that amazing body of work that you have Uh, All of the writings that you've done over the years were in this wonderful Twitter thread. So I'll put links to all of this going on in our show notes. Once again, Paul, thank you for getting up early to join us in Washington. We really appreciate it. No, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, and it's always uh, it's always wonderful to join you on Cobus. It's it's like the it's the highlight of my day. Cobus, I am so glad that you brought up the question of the upcoming party congress in China because it is going to be a very important political year. But as we've talked about on the African side as well, there's going to be a lot of political changes. But the security issues that we talked about at the top of the show are, 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 are not – I don't think they're going to get better this year. I think there's going to be a lot more turbulence uh, on the individual level and at the security level. The, the frequency of – reports of home invasions, of robberies. And again, these are the things that we're tracking in these WeChat channels. So it's not making the major news, but our China editors finding all of these stories in these WeChat channels that are very, very local in each African country. And when you start adding them up together, there is quite a bit. So it doesn't surprise me that a ministry like the Public Security Ministry is now getting involved in the question of protecting Chinese personnel overseas. So I think that's going to be something that we should look ahead. But it is going to be, I think, a bumpy year ahead. I think so. You know, adding to that, I think it was interesting that there's that there's increasing kind of movement on the DC side um, to provide support for Somaliland independence. Well, at least in think tank circles, it hasn't moved into the policy realm yet, as far as I know. Yes, but we know that that you know kind of that combination of lobbying, and we know that the Somaliland people are lobbying in the D- in, in DC, and the combination of lobbying and think tanks is is a kind of a runway, you know, kind of towards towards a kind of a more mainstream discussion of the issue. Um, so that'll be interesting, you know, kind of it'll, it'll be interesting to see whether there's any kind of bandwidth for that issue in, in the Biden administration at all. Well, let me let me just give you my take on that before you move on. I don't think that this is intended to be done in the Biden administration. Yes. Notice where yes. this is coming from. It's coming from the American Enterprise Institute and from Heritage Foundation, two notoriously conservative think tanks. And I think they're laying the groundwork for the next Republican administration 
to do this. Yeah, as, as you know, as, according also along the president of South Sudan, you know, kind of which also had a, a kind of very strong evangelical kind of support for its independence. And then, you know, we, we saw the support coming through the Bush administration. So, you know, it, it, you know, the, it would be interesting to see whether that kind of runway building actually works. But I would be very interested to, 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 to hear what the kind of DC reaction is to the kind of, you know, all of the, this, this kind of security cooperation that Paul was describing a lot of it has been in the public record but as he said that you know people don't read that public record people don't kind of don't connect those dots across so, so, so many years and across so many different African countries but when you do you see you know kind of much more kind of comprehensive cooperation than I think many many people in western capitals are aware of it also speaks to this issue of the knowledge gaps that are out there and you and I all week we have just been well I don't have any hair left no you don't either <laughs> So we've been pulling out. Shaving it, baby. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have any hair left, so we can't pull out our hair. Just in frustration in terms of how the difficulties that, say, the international financial press is having in covering the China-Africa story. And I think that there are difficulties that Western governments are having tracking the story, in part because the, the only conclusion that I have is that in order to understand a story as complex as this one, you have to put in the time and the hours in understanding it. And I don't think that busy diplomats and busy foreign policy analysts and intelligence analysts are putting in the time. I just don't, and journalists in, in particular, because the gaps in their knowledge, especially in the media, are just exasperating. Like we we called out the Wall Street Journal in today's newsletter and, and the, the reporting there was really appalling. <laughs> um, and, you know, and it's, it's really amazing to see how the, the, the kind of some of the most prominent kind of publications in the Western world getting really major things wrong and no, you know, with with no result. Yeah, and it's so it's just ongoing. It's just. I mean, part of it, part of it is you know, kind of not not to sound you know, you know, too, too mean about it, but I think it does it does reflect a kind of a, a lack of respect for African African realities, right? Kind of like a, just a, 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 a an an incapability or like an unwillingness to. To, to really engage with the, with the continent, to just be, yeah, yeah, you know, African countries, they're kind of the same. But the Wall Street Journal article today wasn't had nothing to do with Africa. It was about Sri Lanka. So this is not uniquely yes, an issue but, but to this Africa, is, per se. But, but this is true right across the, you know, Sri Lanka could just as well have been in Africa. You know, kind of like, it's 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 the same, it's the same kind of, of phenomenon. It's, it's a kind of global north versus global south kind of phenomenon. Yeah, so what I was writing about today in the Wall Street Journal article was the fact that China owns 10% of Sri Lanka's debt, yet the Wall Street Journal today framed the entire article around that China was the linchpin in Sri Lanka's debt distress, when in fact, the Sri Lankans owe three and a half times as much to bondholders, and yet that gets a pass. The, 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 the Sri Lankans owe almost an identical amount to the Japanese, and yet that's not the concern. And so for a country that only has 10% of the debt, one just has to wonder why are they at the center of this unless there is evidence to support that there, this hidden debt that's there is something that we should all be worried about. But the journalist isn't using that. And then the journalist in the Wall Street Journal report quotes unnamed U.S. officials and quote-unquote some scholars for being concerned about Chinese predatory lending in, in Sri Lanka, which again is a legitimate concern. But if you're going to do that, U.S. officials are not impartial observers in this. 
they they have a stake in all of this. So to, to me, who cares what U.S. officials think about this? The journalists should be quoting legitimate sources who have some insight on this. In terms of the scholars, we interviewed many of them, and they all made the point that that the the, the kind of conclusions this journalist is drawing, you know, kind of is uh, they it's it's not according to reality. So some scholars might be thinking it, but not important scholars, you know, not not the kind of scholars you need to quote. But this is, and again, this was my problem with the Financial Times's report as well, where they opened their story on the slowdown in Chinese lending in Africa based on the Daily Monitor's just outright bad reporting on the Entebbe airport being seized by China because of a debt default, which did not happen. And yet they give it credence in the first two paragraphs of the story and never saying that it was just bad journalism which led to this whole controversy. There was no controversy about the Chinese taking over the Entebbe airport because of a debt default. There was only bad journalism at the Daily Monitor. And by the way, the Daily Monitor has still not corrected that headline that says that the airport is being surrendered to the Chinese. And yet, you know, journalists like David Pilling and Catherine Hill, who are amazing journalists, they carry these narratives which just are weak. It's just weak. And I just, for the life of me, cannot understand how, how otherwise really great journalists are just missing this. It's not that hard. I just I don't get it. I think what you know. I think one one what one of the things that I've seen over the years of of just following the stuff day in day out is that in a lot of Western countries, uh, like Africa China relations functions as a kind of fantasy world. You know, kind of it's some somewhere far away, not really linked to the same kind of reality they're living on a daily basis. Africa's strange, and and China's strange, and the combination is even stranger. That there's this kind of like you know rules of reality don't apply, kind of like way of thinking about the relationship. You know, kind of and and that is why the relationship is also has carries such kind of emotional tenor in the political discussion because it becomes this kind of like imaginary space where anything is possible. You know. That's one of the reasons why I think it's so difficult to 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 why why narratives like the death trap is so pernicious because it's 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 kind of like to keep insisting like we do that none of this is based on fact none of this is actually happening on the ground is almost kind of missing the point because the the point of the Africa China relationship for people particularly in Western countries is as this kind of space this kind of dream space um you know and, and i think there, there's there's a lot of of problems in that that particular situation I mean, what they've been doing too is then six paragraphs into these reports they will then say there's no evidence of predatory lending or there's no evidence of the fact that in the case of the ft that china's loan contracts were actually that exceptional they're very much like commercial loan contracts and so they start the whole reports leaning into the debt trap narrative and then put a disclaimer midway through the article and then kind of continue on with some of the the more feeble narratives. And it, it really is unfortunate because it drives so much of the discourse in the wrong direction. And meantime, while we're focusing on things that aren't actually happening, again, like the Entebbe airport in Uganda being seized by the Chinese, the Chinese are doing other things which deserve scrutiny. Again, questions about why 
Is the China Exim Bank forcing Kenya to repay the loans now when every other major creditor is giving them some deference? Questions about the transparency of Chinese loan contracts, questions about the collateralization of Chinese loan contracts. These are all really legitimate questions, but we're focused on these things that don't exist, like bases in Equatorial Guinea and debt trap narratives. But I guess that's what passes for discourse in places like Washington, Paris, and Brussels and London. I mean, it's just, it's frustrating because I think they're missing the bigger story there. It's again, I'm not saying this to defend the Chinese. I just think the debt trap narrative is is bogus because there just isn't any evidence for it there. And yes, you can make up all the fantasies you want about how it could happen, it might have happened, whatever. If this was really a, stri- a strategic initiative of the Chinese, it would have happened with much more regularity than it has. And it hasn't happened. So, and also I think to the point we've talked to a bunch of people in Beijing over the years who say that China's financing mechanisms are so disjointed and chaotic. It shows a lack of understanding of how this machine actually works, that it's not anywhere near as organized as people give it credit for. And and there's a lot of agencies at play. There's a lot of agendas at play. There's a lot of factions that are going on. And getting the China Exim Bank, the state-owned enterprises, the policy banks, the political structure, the foreign ministry, all of these in powerful MOFCOM to somehow agree and line up it's just not feasible, and it really reveals the fact that people just don't understand how this works. So, yeah, I mean, you and I, every day we have this conversation. How is this possible that this keeps happening? It, but it just keeps happening day in and day out. I feel like when I write every day for our readers, uh, it sounds like a broken record, which I hope we don't, but it, it just there's no let up in it lately. Yeah, but, you know, I can tell you how it happens. The the you know once that story is out the, the 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 chinese government responds with its usual kind of stridency you know kind of saying that you know kind of western western press is kind of using lies to try and kind of drive a wedge between china and africa which you know if your reporting is shoddy then that kind of weirdly kind of becomes the truth and then on the african side who cares what african thinks <laughs> you know, like like the Wall Street Journal doesn't care what Africa thinks. So that's it. That's the, the, then it happened, and then they move on. But that's part of the problem too. Is is the Chinese response is this screaming and yelling in this exactly? It, exactly. It's just it's, this it's immature, childish way of just shrill, kind of like wah, America's criticizing us again. And yeah, and exactly. instead of them coming back up with a really thoughtful response. But yet they let these guys, these hacks at the Global Times, get away with just, again, they're just, they would be so much more effective if they just calmly responded to it and thoughtfully responded and said, point A, point B, point C, point D. And because when you see these kind of like, they're just stupid responses. <laughs> There's no other word for it. They're not credible and nobody pays attention. No one cares about point A, B and C and D except us. I guess so. I guess so. You know, kind of the, 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 the people, the people, the main constituency of Global Times is people who want that You're emotional right. hit right. of like a, a strong punch back, you know. So that's that's how it goes. That's Last it. point I want to put out there in terms of my list of, of frustrations is this story about the Standard Gauge Railway in Kenya. And I was amazed by this. So last year, the attorney general made the case that the contracts for the Standard Gauge Railway cannot be released to the public because the people suing, these are these two activists who are suing the government to make all of the contracts for the $3.4 billion, this was phase one of the Standard Gauge Railway to be public. And according to Kenyan law, this is what should happen under the procurement laws. 
The attorney general said, no, these activists don't have standing in court, and he used all these legal reasons. Then the transport cabinet secretary came out and said, we cannot release them because of national security reasons. This is the first time I've ever heard national security come up because it said that this was a an agreement between two governments. And if we release it, it will compromise our international relations with the other government. And this, this again, goes to the point of African agency, that it is not just the Chinese who are responsible for the opacity and the lack of transparency in the lending process. African governments, like what's going on in Kenya, need to be held accountable for this and need to be included in the discourse. So when we talk about you know, the Chinese are doing this and the Chinese are doing that, we also have to say that many, many African governments are complicit in this. And deserve to be called out for it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> it just infuriates me. But what was so interesting was on Twitter, yeah. crickets. I posted the Daily Nation story on this thinking, wow, this might actually get, this is an interesting story. Because it violates so many of the narratives. Had I put a story up on Twitter that said, China is doing XYZ bad thing in Kenya regarding the loans and the standard gauge, it would have been on fire from Kenyan Twitter, from American Twitter, from European Twitter, from Nigerian Twitter, you name it. You put this story out, nothing. Mm. Nothing. Yeah, I'm not Amazing. Surprised. And I put it on LinkedIn. You know, I've got, what, 800 and some, 825, 835,000 followers on LinkedIn. Normally, my posts get 50,000, 60,000 views. This one <laughs> got like 6,000 views. Mm. I mean, it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's just, I think it makes people feel uncomfortable because pooping on China is something that everybody kind of gets. We're well trained to do that. The Chinese make it easy. But all of a sudden now, when it's these guys in the Kenyan government who are so visibly behaving badly, I don't think people know what to do. No one's really talking about this story. I, I, so I'm just, that surprises me. Given the fact that so many people in Kenya are pissed off with their own government, mm. you thought that this would be something that they would kind of play on. Even in an election season, you'd think that this is something that the opposition would would play on. But nothing, nothing. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to speak with the Kenyan media expert about this issue. You know, well, we can't, we tried. And people are turning mm. us down because they say it's yeah. against the law to talk about an active court case which, to be honest with you, I don't understand because the Daily Nation is reporting on it. So again, me, I just there's so much in this world that I will be on. I will be very upfront and honest <laughs> that I don't understand. This is one of it, one of the things. So, okay, we put a lot of information in today's show. This is the kind of stuff that we're covering every single day on the website. If you are interested in what's going on. I highly recommend that you check out a subscription. It's seven bucks a month for students and teachers, 15 bucks a month for everybody else. You'll get full access to thousands of articles in the archives. We put primary source information everywhere we can. Like today, for example, we were the first hours before anybody else had the trade data. Our editor in China found that, got it to us. We analyzed it and hours before. So you can go into your meeting the next day 
armed with news and analysis about the trade data long before anybody else gets it. That's the kind of stuff that we do. We are following these WeChat channels, which nobody else seems to be following in any meaningful way. And, and it's really, there's some great stuff that we're putting together. We have this great team of, uh, of people around Africa now. So we have an expanding team. We're going to be launching our French and Arabic services very soon. All of those sites are being built. All of the infrastructure is being put in place. We're super excited about that. We're going to be forming partnerships with a number of Francophone and Arabophone media networks around Africa as well to be able to amplify their coverage on China-Africa issues in those languages. So we got a lot of cool things going on. If you want to be a part of what we're doing, head over to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Also, if you just want to hang out with us and and chill, uh, our Patreon community is fantastic for that. Patreon.com slash ChinaAfricaProject. So we have a couple different things depending on what you want to do. And if you have any questions whatsoever, give me an email, eric at chinaafricaproject.com. That's E-R-I-C at chinaafricaproject.com. Okay, let's leave it there. Hope everybody has a fantastic weekend. Kobus and I are going to be coming back next week. We have had a couple guest cancellations, so we're going to be scrambling for a guest for next week. But let's see who we can dig up. It'll be a mystery to both of us. And uh, we'll be back again early next week with another episode. So until then, for Kobus Van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. For more information about the China Africa Project, go to chinaafricaproject.com. Project.com.